Hello, and welcome to Someday We'll All Be Dead, a podcast where we talk about all the things with a social work perspective. I'm your host, Hallie Harris, and I'm a hospice social worker. Today you get a two-for-one because I'm talking with Samantha Manowitz, who is also a social worker, getting ready to pursue her doctorate in social work and doing really amazing things with the polyamory and kink communities that we'll get into here when I start the interview. So um, just know that there, there are still some audio problems that I'm trying to work out. If any of you are audio experts, by all means, please contact me so I can make this better for you. But I hope that doesn't interfere with the amazing talk I had with Samantha about exploring Fifty Shades of Grey, why we have shame around things like this and guilty pleasures in general, and uh, how it affects the BDSM world. How close is the movie to portraying BDSM accurately, and that the BDSM and kink and polyamory community are not immune to the same kind of abuses and isms as every other community. So that is what we talk about. Let's get into it. I am super excited to talk to you today. Um, thank you. Samantha, okay. thank you so much for talking with me today. If you hear random noises oh, yeah. in the background, it's my cats deciding that they need to make some noise. That is valid. That's what cats do. <laughs> um, sort of as a side note, uh, for some of my sessions, I'll use VC, which is a HIPAA-compliant video chat software, and I cannot tell you the number of cat tails and butts I've uh, seen uh, being VC. Nice. Yeah, they could sleep all day, and literally the second I push record, it's, oh, I need to make noise. Yes, that's the law. It's it, law. it really is. <laughs> so, Samantha, could you maybe give our listeners um, a little bit of background about what you're all about and, yeah, sure. what you do? So, uh, as you said, my name is Samantha Manowitz. I am currently an independent social worker practicing for the next two months in the Boston area. I'm also an ASEC certified sex therapist training to be an an ASEC sex therapy supervisor. Uh, Among my specialties are working with folks who identify uh, not just with the LGBTQ rainbow alphabet soup, but (laughs) folks in uh, consensual non-monogamy, including polyamory and BDSM and pink. And uh, starting September 2019, I'm going to be in a PhD social work program at University of Toronto with a graduate specialization in sexual diversity studies, where I will be hopefully researching abuse prevention and response in kink and uh, poly slash sex positive non-monogamous communities. That is a mouthful and also so amazing. I'm very excited for you to start that. Thank you. Me too. And I'm not at all terrified of all the things I have to do between now and then. (laughs) I hear you. (laughs) That is terrifying, but I think you're going to do amazing. Thank you so, so much. And we are going to come back to that whole mouthful of what you're doing at the end because once people hear... Uh, your thoughts and know a little bit more about you. They're going to want to support everything that you're doing with your other work. So That would be awesome. Heck yeah. yeah. So I have asked you, because of your specialties, to talk to me today about um, shame and how it relates to Fifty Shades of Grey. (laughs) Oh, specifically Fifty Shades of Grey. Fifty Shades, yeah. So... <laughs> That's funny. So, can you tell me a little bit more, or more specifically, what you're looking for? I definitely will. So, um, first, I just wanted to kind of give everybody the definition of shame that I'm kind of working with, which is that painful uh, feeling of humiliation or distress caused by the conscientious uh, consciousness of wrongful or foolish behavior. Mm-hmm. So, of course, shame is abound in our culture, uh, I think in particular in religious context, but it doesn't just have to be that. Um, certainly we are constantly shaming each other for all kinds of things. Uh, I was just talking to someone in my last podcast about parenting and how parents like to shame each other 
even though we're all just yeah. trying to do our best here. Absolutely. Um, I think about Brene Brown's differentiation between uh, shame and guilt, which guilt being I made a mistake and shame being I am a mistake. Yes. Yes. And if anybody listening has not listened to that, please Google Brene Brown and watch all of her things. <laughs> I, I might want to be a cross between her and Esther Perel when I grow up. <laughs> I might want to be a cross between Brene Brown and you when I grow up. Oh, well, thank you. No pressure. No pressure. Um, So, specifically then, shame about sex. So, you've talked about your specialty is the sex-positive culture and giving therapy and supporting people who are in sexual, sexual relationships that are consensual and that are, there's nothing wrong with them, and yet still... We are so shameful as a culture and community, especially, I mean, you'd think the United States would be better, but we're not. You yeah, know. not in this current political culture. Things are getting <laughs> a lot dicier, actually, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, this is also one of those historical crux points where the personal and political are ramming together in ways that are literally matters of life and death for people. So, yeah. what's interesting about Fifty Shades of Grey is when I think of shame and that book, I know a lot of people in the scene who are very ashamed from liking that book. (laughs) Well, that's exactly Um, what I want to talk about. (laughs) Yes, because the relationship that is depicted in Fifty Shades of Grey isn't actually a healthy kink dynamic. And there is, if there's one thing that anti-porn activists and kinksters can agree upon, it's that they hate Fifty Shades of Grey. (laughs) Well, hold that thought, because I want to get to that. But in case people haven't lived in Iraq and don't know what Fifty Shades of Grey is, um, there are three books, Fifty Shades of Grey, Fifty Shades Darker, Fifty Shades Freed. They were created out of a fan fiction from the Twilight series. If you don't know what that is, you go Google it. Um, Actually, um, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. There is an excellent YouTube channel called Folding Ideas that breaks apart popular culture and popular media. The the guy who runs it is named Dan Olson, and he has a three-part series, which he calls a lukewarm defense of the Fifty Shades of Grey movies, and they are excellent, and I highly recommend that your listeners check his channel out and those videos out, because they're, they're a really fantastic breakdown of um, the books and the movies and what makes them problematic, the things that don't completely suck, and you know some of the cinematic language behind it, and it's excellent, and everyone should watch them. It sounds amazing. I'm definitely going to check it out. <laughs> yes. Folding Ideas is the, the YouTube channel. That is awesome. I, I don't awesome. know them personally. It's just an excellent series. It, it sounds awesome. So yeah. they, they made these books into uh, movies. Yeah. And, you know, ultimately, basically, it's a kinky rom-com, kind of. Uh, you know, kind of, I mean, they're, they're, they're making, I think she was ultimately trying to get at that, where the backdrop is this BDSM kink relationship, but there's also this infusion of drama and, um, you know, her, it's her first love and how does she feel about all that? And of course there's, they got to put some drama of, you know, kidnapping and whatever. So... And ultimately, it's a happy ending. I mean, spoiler yeah, uh, alert. <laughs> d- d- theoretically happy, yes. Right. I, I mean... Depicted in the movie. Yes. I, I, one of the things that makes the that particular depiction of BDSM problematic is the fact that E.L. James doesn't seem to realize that she is entering into territory of really dubious consent. Um... Christian Grey gives Anna a contract and enforces it even though she never signs it. When they're negotiating the contract in the book, he gets her dressed.
BDSM relationships. There are BDSM relationships that are unhealthy. There is abuse in the community, but that's because there is abuse in every community. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, so, absolutely. Uh, one of the things that a lot of folks or a lot of people who I know in the B- in, in various BDSM communities, they worry that because those books conflate abusive dynamics with pink relationships and the things that kind of Anna falls in love with are actually like giant, enormous red flags. The fear is, is if that's kind of the main popular culture depiction of BDSM, that that will create problems within, you know, uh, in terms of just gaining mainstream acceptance. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and let, yeah, let's let's break that down a little bit because that's exactly what I want to get into and have people understand. So, as yeah. a non, you know, BDSM um, person or someone that hasn't been really exposed to the true community, um, I don't know these rules. So when I'm watching the movie and I hear the, the criticism of, oh, that's an abusive relationship and all these things, and I'm watching it from the perspective of how she wrote them, I think. So when I'm watching it, I'm like, yeah, there were missteps, but it also does show her, and even in the book more so, I think, because it is, allows you to go into what her what she's thinking a little bit more, yeah. but... Um, but it still does, like, she is able to, like, especially the very end of the first book, or first movie, both, is like, no, stop, you're done, I'm not tolerating this, and he does stop. Um, and he even is very much like, what are your safe words, make sure you're using your safe words, and it feels, it has the feel of, which is probably what the danger is, (laughs) it has the feel of trying to be safe. So, can you break that down a little bit more? Yeah, actually, the the Folding Ideas video breaks this down really beautifully, but um, there are, in that relationship, as it's portrayed in the movie, a lot of intrinsic power dynamics that go unnamed and unaddressed. So when you're looking at BDSM, uh, there is an excellent educator, uh, Midori, who... She wrote one of the first mainstream books on Japanese rope bondage. She's been in the scene for many years. She is one of also one of the people I want to be like when I grow up. <laughs> uh, uh, her definition of BDSM is childhood play with adult sexual privilege and cool toys. Hmm. Okay. It, you know, BDSM, when folks engage in kinky play... It's called play because there is a certain type of reenactment and engaging of various aspects of ourselves and some shadow parts of ourselves that may not be able to come out otherwise. Sometimes that's sexual, but it doesn't necessarily have to be, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, and and I was just, it was occurring to me just now that I've actually heard multiple definitions of the actual acronym BDSM, so maybe you could clarify yes. that as well. <laughs> so BDSM is kind of a multifunctional acronym, and it stands for multiple things. So oh, good. I, so the way that I initially learned it was bondage, dominance, status, and masochism. But it can also be bondage, discipline, Submission, masochism, bondage, dominance, sadomasochism—it—it—it it, it, it varies. I actually have to go back and look at at my class slides when I teach my BDSM 101 class for all of the different variations of the definition. Oh, good. So, so it does include all of those. I'm not crazy. <laughs> yeah. No, no, you're not crazy. That is accurate, and it, it's not confusing at all. Except it totally is. <laughs> So, um, yeah, go ahead. uh And BDSM communities, I mean, there have been, they've been depicted in literature since Marquis de Sade, if not earlier, like in ancient Greece, when the ancient Greeks did whatever it was they did. You know, um, sadomasochism is named after the author Sakharov Masik, who wrote, I think it was Venus and Birds, which is about 
relationships. But like the concept of of power exchange and that type of play in sexual or eroticized situations has existed in humanity for ever. Right. Uh, the actual communities of BDSM have multiple different iter- uh, uh, origin points. Uh, one of the biggest ones is actually in gay leather culture from the 50s, 60s, and 70s. You got the kind of pinup bondage. Uh, actually, even even earlier, I think some of the earliest videos when they invented the movie camera were pornography and they were BDSM porn so it's it's existed for a very long time yeah um, modern BDSM culture comes from a number of places one of them comes from the gay leather scene I don't know a lot about where it or where it originated in in heterosexual culture but um, in Chicago there is the leather archives and museum that collects memorabilia and stories and art from uh, gay and lesbian leather and BDSM communities. So, like, there are even people who are trying to preserve that cultural history. That would be something to see. Yeah. No, it's fantastic. If anyone is ever in the Chicago area, I recommend checking them out. They've got really, really fascinating collections, if that is remotely your jam. (laughs) Yeah, it sounds fascinating. Yeah. So, can you think of specific moments um, in the film that are particularly problematic for you? Like, I'm thinking about the fact that when they're talking about Mrs. Robinson and how his whole entry into that world is probably pretty problematic, especially considering his trauma history. Yeah, and uh, the thing that makes that problematic is it keys into a really common stereotype that a number of studies have recently debunked, that if you engage in BDSM, there must be something wrong with you, you must have been abused as a child. Right. So folks within the BDSM community get really, really touchy when that is depicted in film. Um, And understandably so. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I have identified as kinky and non-monogamous myself, um, and I discovered the scene in 2005, so it's been a minute. (laughs) But I I joke that the thing that, you know, there were a bunch of clues in college that should have been light bulb moments that absolutely were not, such as watching the movie Secretary and thinking it was the hottest thing I'd ever seen in my life. Uh, and if you haven't seen the movie Secretary, it is it is excellent. But one of the things that people found problematic about that movie, and I find the protagonist in uh, in Secretary far more interesting because she has a lot more agency and she very actively ups in to the DS dynamic with the James Bader character. Mm. Um, but both of them also have kind of really broken backstories and at the beginning of the film she is coming out of an inpatient facility for self-injury and and that movie got a lot of flack within the kink community when it came out because it's like oh these people are kinky because they have these histories or because they're broken Um, although that wasn't necessarily my reading of that film well, and I imagine in that same vein that the um, previous sub of Christian Grey in the movie, when she is, oh, yeah. you know, like hospitalized and... <laughs> yeah, BDSM tries the brain. Um, and also there is the, the undertone of, you know, BDSM isn't disease, but you're totally fixing him. Right. Well, that's yeah. <laughs> that kind of leads into the other part of the whole, you know, why do we like these movies? Why do why is it that yeah. we like Twilight and we like Fifty Shades of Grey and and freaking Disney and whatever else like these unrealistic, yeah. ridiculous depictions of relationships, and yet it touches something in us. Yeah. 
that makes us want to do that and then we replay these terrible ideas in our own relationships and you know uh -huh. then we all get Florence uh, Nightingale complexes yeah I mean it's the same reason why we engage in play and why play is so important and play can be so therapeutic is there are a lot of things that you know looking at films or reading books can kind of allow us to experience these really heightened emotional spaces from a relatively safe space or safe container. And in a way, uh, engaging in BDSM is very much the same thing. Because, so when somebody engages in a kink scene, and I'm sorry, I'm getting completely off track from your initial question. No, 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 go for it. it. I promise. <laughs> from his great wealth and everything else power dynamic yes. wise long follow-up. I guess I'm kind of surprised by that. Um, I was all 
endorphins were flowing, I was kind of in an altered state that's known as subspace, which can be kind of a goal for people to get into when they're going into scene. And the safe words that we had agreed on were, you know, yellow is, I need you to stop the thing you're doing right now, but I want the scene to continue. And red is, full stop, we're done. Okay. So in that moment, I used my yellow safe word. And oh. he stopped the scene. Oh. And so at the end, we sort of, you know, I got the shower, I got cleaned up. He was like, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. And a few days later, we would process and part of the aftercare was I asked him about that. I said, I noticed that you stopped the scene when I used my yellow. And I just wanted to know what was going on for you. Like, I'm, I'm glad you did. I think ultimately that was the right call. And he said, well, you know, that horrible trope, like, you know, the mouth says no, but the eyes say yes. Yeah. Well, in your case, the mouth said yellow, but your eyes said red. Wow. Yeah. And so for me, I really needed that aftercare and that, you know, and that processing a few days later when I had time to wrap my head around everything that happened, you know, once my body was back in equilibrium. You know, it's funny to me that BDSM is so hidden and pushed aside because that kind of communication level would make our world so much better. Yeah, and and I do have to say a lot of my work is with trauma survivors and people who have dealt with abuse and consent violations. And in a way, my experience in the scene has given me a really rich vocabulary to talk to people who aren't in dynamics about consent and assent and getting really granular about what that means and what that means to both say yes and mean yes. Right. Yeah. That's an amazing example of exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Which is why, again, it's childhood play with adult sexual privilege and usually cool toys. (laughs) Well... All my notes are back to the movie, but now I feel guilty doing it because you have such rich and amazing stories. Yeah, um, yeah, it, uh, that happens. <laughs> I, I ramble. No, no, it's but, it's amazing. Know, yeah, and so so going back to the movie and the book and the the thing that Dan Olson points out in his his lukewarm defense is that uh, the the inner monologue of Anna in a lot of ways makes her a weaker character and makes it very clear that the things that she was engaging with, she wasn't processing as sexy, kinky fun. She was processing it as trauma and as pain and as suffering and a thing she had to endure to stay in that relationship. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Whereas in the movie Secretary, like, there's a point where he, the James Spader character stops engaging in play, and actually, he's also Mr. Gray, which I find funny. <laughs> that is funny. Um, and she's really sad that it stops, and so she does something to provoke him, to get him to re-engage, and that's not something that you see Anna do. Right. Right. No, and and to your point about wanting to fix him, he, you know, in the movie, they're also playing with this idea, again, back to the fantasy world that we like to put ourselves in, is, you know, he's saying things like, what are you doing to me, and I'm changing, and all these things. So he's not actually portraying a good BDSM role either. No. Because I imagine that's not a common scenario, is going from, you know, a clear consent of what you're going to be playing with into, you know, squishiness of romance and real, you know, other types of relationships. I almost said real relationship, but that's not what I meant, so I correct myself. Yeah. <laughs> um, but actually, one of my favorite commentaries of it is um, Lori Penny wrote a, a parody of it that she calls um, Fifty Shades of Socialist Feminism. <laughs> um, so let's see. I-, I wanted to read a bit. One of them is um, 
She says something to the effect of, my inner goddess sprouts a thousand tentacles and demands a blood sacrifice. like this is really it's it, not fair to take it to the Bechdel test which yeah. for people that don't know is you know two women you know hopefully two women are named which they actually are in this movie yeah. but two women talk about something that's not men which doesn't happen <laughs> no it, it is a, a giant fail of the Bechdel test but, but yeah. I don't know if that's really fair to I mean that's not what it was made for you know should all no. movies be held to that standard if no. the point of the movie Absolutely is this not. other thing yeah i mean when harry met sally is one of my favorite movies and that doesn't pass the bechdel test at all right because that movie is about relationships and in, in all of their messiness and i think in certain ways the existence of 50 shades of gray has helped to at least bring the conversation into public consciousness in a way that I don't think other pieces of media have for mm -hmm. whatever reason. So in that regard, you know, people will use the book as kind of an entry point into other BDSM communities where hopefully they will learn better habits. But at the same time, you know, if there's one thing that I've learned uh, just in, in years doing abuse and trauma work is that if you think it can't happen here and you think it can't happen to you, think again. Like, no matter where here is or who you are. And sometimes because in BDSM communities there is an expectation that we have vocabulary around communication and consent, and that's something that, you know, when you go to educational events around the country or around the world, that's really deeply hammered home, sometimes there can be a little bit of a false sense of security because here is a community where consent is the norm. And then what happens when someone violates your consent within your safe space? Ah, right, right. And um, there are people I know who identify Ooh. as, you know, kinky, who identify as submissive. There's somebody who... Um, did a kink scene and she's like, this is part of who I am, and then was sexually assaulted by a cop who she thought she trusted. Hmm. And well, and like you said, it's, it's in every community. There's always abusers. Yeah. But then, you know, you have this trauma that's now infecting this thing that is a really important part of your life, and mm -hmm. then how do you get that back? Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And how do you heal from it? Which is also why uh, when abuse occurs within BDSM and within the community, there are just a whole extra set of ramifications that come with it. Which totally makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So. What do you think this film does for female sexuality? Because just in general, female sexuality is considered kind of shameful. You know, we still are so yeah. repressed with that from our uh, yeah. Puritan roots in this country? I mean, it depends. It, it, it really varies person to person and community to community. Uh, I think there are ways in which certain scenes are structured that kind of replicate that dynamic without realizing that's what's happening. Mm -hmm. 
there are other aspects of the community that are really working on breaking those down. Um, all of the same isms that you have in every community, like racism and sexism and transphobia and, you know, um, issues of inclusivity are, are, do all exist within BDSM communities. And because these communities already are stigmatized um, and presumed unhealthy, one of the things that happened, a little bit less so now, but, but still to a big degree, is that when abuse does happen, there is pressure from within the community to sweep those stories under the rug mm. because, you know, we are fighting very hard to differentiate between BDSM and abuse. So if heaven forbid the mainstream media get a hold of a story about somebody being abused in a BDSM context, it's like, don't give our enemies ammunition. Right, um, right which is why it's called the double closet. You see this in LGBT communities in the run-up to marriage equality. Uh, it became, it was really hard for a very long time to get accurate statistics on uh, incidents of abuse and assault in uh, you know, gay and queer relationships because there was an incentive to stay silent because if the religious right got a hold of those narratives, Right. Exactly. That yeah. set everybody back ten years. Right. And so And somehow the culture is not able to delineate the whole, you know, this happens in every community and this is an isolated incident. It's not you know, one person does it and they all do it. We do that with every yeah. single thing in our community. Exactly. But in terms of women's sexuality, I think that you know, that's really hard to say because there are so many different types of gender expression that are within kink and BDSM. And sometimes, you know, people get to play and deliberately subvert a lot of those gender roles. Hmm. Do you think that Anna's expression of her own sexuality was, you know, depicted in a positive way, aside from the problematic abuse situation? Interesting. Um, Inter- that's true, but interesting. I hadn't thought of that. super judgy about other women and their sex lives, right? <laughs> Including her friend Kate, who does the exact same thing that she does. So right. I think that there is a lot of, um, there is a lot of misogyny in E.L. James's depiction of, of kink and sexuality and of Anna. That's a great so, point. Great point. Yeah. Um, but if you tell her that, she will harass you on Twitter. Oh, good yeah. to know. <laughs> for, so for yeah. a good time, go harass E.L. James, is what you're saying? Yeah, do, do not do. You will never hear the end of it, that bad things will happen. <laughs> uh, or at least it did in 2015. Wow. So. All right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I just want to kind of end on a, well, as far as the movie part, um, kind of end on coming back to guilty pleasures. You know, we, we all, there's always this thing in the culture about guilty pleasures, whether it's music or films or um, kink or whatever. So why, I mean, I don't because I don't really have any shame and I don't really care, but, you know, I'm, I'm kind of narcissistic like that. But, you know, why should people feel like this is a guilty pleasure movie. It is what it is. We're, you know, it's terrible writing. The The actual book was, you know, crap writing. But it's just like the rest of the romance novels. It's not meant to be Shakespeare or freaking Whitman. It's just meant to be a simple pleasure, get your mind off of it, and go down this fantasy road for a minute. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that there's anything inherently wrong liking that book and there are you know legitimate reasons why that book resonated with people for for myriad reasons um i i do think that when you read a book like 50 shades 
you can't read it in a vacuum. You need to, to and I, I think that we all need to look at all of the media we consume with a certain critical eye. Um, with the, you know, sort of understanding, so long as you understand that this is fiction and that it is not a realistic depiction of BDSM, I don't think there's inherently anything wrong with liking the book. Um, it, 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 there's a, a webcomic, Oh Joy Sex Toy, and back when the books came out, you know, the, the, the webcomic author talked about how she loved it for the same reasons she loves pulp novels or, or fan fiction. Kind of very, I'm a fan of Mystery Science Theater 3000. <laughs> there are, you know, I, I, I love crap media and small robots smirking at crap media. Right, um, right. I'm a fan of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Of course. So <laughs> it's, you know, it's depictions of, you know, transvestites and gender are hella problematic. You can accept the problematic elements of, you know, involved in it without completely canceling the piece of media. Right, right, exactly. So, and also our erotic imaginations are not politically correct. The more taboo and wrong and dirty things are, the more we as humans are drawn to them. I mean, yeah, there's a reason that we can't look away from a car crash. Exactly. <laughs> you know, and BDSM, another thing that can make it so powerful is that when folks engage in kinky play, you're kind of letting your deepest, darkest monsters out of their box and letting someone else bear witness to them. In a and safe environment. <laughs> yeah, and to me there's something really powerful and really sacred about creating that so, you know, I, I think about therapists and social workers and people in our field who, if they come across a kinky person who uses Midori's definition of BDSM, and you're immediately pathologizing, mm-hmm. right, that immediately creates dissonance and friction in that therapeutic relationship, and your ability to work with that person will be compromised. Well, and ultimately, maybe you need to consider why you're a therapist, <laughs> because yeah. you're supposed to kind of be oh. non-judgy. Yeah, you'd think, and yet burnout is a thing. Um, I, when I was working at a practice in Indiana, very long story. Um, hey, I got I all night. To, this is your time. <laughs> yeah, I, I went to an event called uh, uh, Caris, which is the Community Academic Consortium for Research on Alternative Sexuality. So I was doing play therapy at the time, um, but I, I, I was I had joined ASEC and wanted to eventually move into work with adults and couples. And the agency I worked at, we had uh, contracts with Child Protective Services. We had a lot of clients who were Medicaid, and then we also had contracts to do um, uh, sex offender treatments and groups. So we had three waiting rooms. We had the general waiting room in the middle. On the right-hand side, we had the children's waiting room. And on the left-hand side, we had the quote-unquote adult waiting room. (laughs) And I had gone to this alternative sexualities conference, and I was giving a presentation on the talks that I had heard about in in this conference. And I heard stuff of like, oh yeah, I have some clients who are into that stuff. Like, you also have some colleagues who are into that stuff and just don't know it. Right. Um, (laughs) And I heard, Polly, that's what Mormons do. Um, Everyone was abused as a kid. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Oh, my God. Was your head just spinning? Yeah. And so I've I've run into a lot of clinicians who will immediately jump to that pathology who will let their countertransfers get in the way. Ugh. That makes me sad. Yep. But it's, you know, part of why I do what I do. Um, yeah. I actually, um, if I can tell a personal story, one of the reasons why I ultimately went into therapy was my own bad experience uh, as a client. So I was seeing somebody, uh, a, a therapist in New York where I was living at the time, and um, I had a partner out here in Boston, and... Um, also, when you're involved in the community, and for, for at that point in time, 
social workers, and then you hang out with people who aren't in the field, and you forget to code switch, and you forget <laughs> what normal conversation looks like. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so that, that happened to me. Um, I, I forgot to code switch with my therapist, and I was talking about an event I had gone to with my partner at the time, and again, I was thinking as a, as a kinky community member, so it didn't even cross my mind that this is not a thing that normal people say. And I, I sort of said offhand, I was like, yeah, I was bruised for weeks after that. It was awesome. And I watched all of the blood drain out of that poor woman's face. <laughs> uh, and I was there for anxiety and executive functioning issues. And she made our therapy all about my kink, all about the kinky play that I was doing. Oh. Whereas for me, this was a strength and a support. And she was completely pathologizing me. And I was like, if this is what, you know, one of the top psychologists in New York does that's terrifying now I was really lucky at that point in time because I had a really strong community and I had somebody to be like yeah you need a new therapist if I had been new if I didn't have the support that I had at that time that woman that therapist could have caused a lot of harm right yeah that's just devastating to hear because it's hard enough to get people to even think about going to therapy and then exactly. you get them to go, and you get someone... Uh, I just can't. Yeah. Uh, that's so upsetting. Yeah. But, you know, it happens, and, and that's part of why I do what I do. And that's part of why I feel it is really important for me to be transparent, not just about my clinical skills and expertise, but also, you know, as a member of these communities myself. Um, yeah. Well, I'm I'm so so glad that you're doing the work that you're doing because it's amazing and it's so badly needed. And thank you so so much. Uh, and, and it can transfer to so many different things, not even specifically kink and and BDSM, but it just yeah. Having a therapist that's non-judgmental, that's not going to pathologize pathologize you. I'm not saying that right. Yeah. Um. So I I want to come back, like I said at the beginning, to come back to. Um, have you talk about the polyamory Me Too um, stuff that yeah. you're doing with abuse survivors? Absolutely. Um, so where do you want me to start? <laughs> well, I want you to tell people what they need to know, and that way they can find your... Uh, and I'm going to have the link for the PayPal um, to, okay. to help out with that. I'm going to put it on Twitter, and I'm going to put it on our Facebook page, but just so that they know kind of a little bit more about what that is and how they can help that. Absolutely. So um, in the polyamory world, there are a number of books that are kind of like your go-to recommendations of like, read this, and it's kind of your first intro. So there is a book that's called More Than Two, and it was written by Eve Rickert and Franklin Foe in 2013. Tell me the title um, of that again. More Than Two Okay. the name of the book. Okay. So um, Eve and Franklin were dating at the time that they wrote the book. Now, uh, and Franklin has kind of positioned himself as an expert in poly and non-monogamy. He gets quoted quite a lot. However, he's trying to figure out the... the straightest line here. <laughs> uh, basically, what had come out is um, at least six women had um, identified and and accused him of uh, emotional abuse and gaslighting and uh, just undue influence and coercion in their relationships. And Eve Rickert is also one of his victims, mm. which makes that, you know, which which gives people a lot of really mixed feelings about that book. Right. And so um, Eve, for a very, for, for a while, was the only survivor of Franklin whose name, who, who was publicly named as one of his victims. And she had been re- 
really terrified for a while to speak out. And while she was terrified, Franklin uh, was going on Quora and referring to her as his abusive ex. Whoa! saying things, yeah. So he was identifying her as his abuser. Yeah. Talk about gaslighting. Good Lord. Yes. Oh, no. Yeah. So, so, so that is, that is what had happened. And so Eve had put together a, uh, a transformative justice pod to help support, um, to support her and the other women who had come forward. And so in February, we brought, we sent a call in letter to Franklin in part as a courtesy to give him an opportunity to kind of step up and, and address these concerns and fix the problematic behavior. But, uh, we, and then when he responded, and he responded in a way that was uh, rather disappointing, it was very um, aggressively negative, and even within his response, there were um, minimizations and gaslights. So a, a bunch of us had signed it, and he had referred to me as some person he met at a con years ago. And somebody else who's on the team is like, you know, Eve's former hairdresser, which, while true, she's also in social work school studying abuse prevention and dynamics and has done all sorts of activism. So, like, there was even gaslighting within his response. Right. And so, um, our process is not centered on him or centered on him getting better but rather to make sure that the voices of the women who he harmed, you know, including Eve, would be heard. Um, and I think, I don't remember if it was last month or the month before, um, we published a, a, another batch of stories, and we're currently up to 12 women at our last count who have come forward, because we put a call and say, you know, if you have experienced harm and you would like to be part of this process, Please come forward. And there's a woman, uh, Louisa Leontiadis, who is a journalist and a student in Berlin, who has been collecting these women's stories. And she has only been sharing them with us, like the survivor support team, um, on the, the, the survivor's timeline. So mm-hmm. we didn't go public with any story um, without the women's consent and without them signing off on what it was that we were publishing. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the other books that Franklin Rowe wrote was called The Game Changer, where he wrote about all of these different game-changing relationships in his life, in his life and how they led to him having this wonderful, happy, polyamorous lifestyle that he had. Um, and in that book, uh, he was very much idealized as one of his like game changer relationships. Um, many of the women of the game changer are some of the people we've identified as survivors. So uh, last month we, we published, or Louisa published in the Polyamory Me Too website, the first batch of stories, which are the women of the game changer sharing their version of their narrative because their actual experience effectively got erased from the book. Wow. Wow. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Um, there is um, a really wonderful show uh, called Documentary Now, which parodies a lot of, there are these beautiful shot-for-shot parodies of, of famous documentaries, uh, like Bill Hader and Fred Armisen uh, were two of the, the kind of the main actors and writers of the show. Well, you had me at Bill Hader. (laughs) Pardon? You had me at Bill Hader. (laughs) Yeah, uh, they're on Netflix. You should check them out. But there's an episode that is a uh, parody of Spalding Gray's Swimming to Cambodia. Because Spalding Gray was known for these, you know, one-man shows and monologues where he was just talking about his experience. And in the parody, it would cut to the people who he was talking about. So he'd talk about his girlfriend, Ramona. And then we'd kind of be like, nope, nope, that's not what happened. Hi, <laughs> I'm Ramona. That's not what happened. Oh, my gosh. You begged me to move in with him, right? And I, and I feel like our process is very much what that episode of Documentary Now is. It's like, uh, no, actually, that's not how 
everyone remembers it. So it was sort of giving them a chance to correct the record. However, um, there are it is going that those set of stories are the first batch in what will be multiple stories that will come out um, as Louisa writes them and collates them, and as the women give their consent. And, and your group is doing all of this. For nothing, you're you're supporting everybody with yeah. just the support from. We're doing a lot of unpaid labor. Yeah. And so we have a, a PayPal pool that people will sporadically donate to. We kind of set an arbitrary goal of two thousand, but it, it the amount of labor we're actually putting in is significantly more. And so, if folks believe in what we were doing, we would love folks to 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 donate to this work. Um, and. The work that we're doing really does go beyond just Franklin and the women that he has harmed. Mm-hmm. Part of our work is trying to get more people engaged in transformative justice as an investment in everybody's safety and community safety. Because, you know, if I am accused of harm in most communities, the only recourse is like, you're out. And that doesn't actually do anything to keep the community safe, although it does create an initial false sense of security. Right. Uh, but people forget that sometimes what happens if you're the one who's accused of harm, mm-hmm. and then you're the one who's getting booted from your community and your social support. And so uh, transformative justice looks at this, and it's not just a, you did bad things, you should be punished, because that doesn't do anything to help the people who were harmed. It does nothing to center the people who need healing. It doesn't do anything to address all of the community or societal factors that enables that person to do harm, you know, to harm people in the first place. So it takes a much more holistic view. And it's like, okay, you know, how do we be more mindful about who we give our platforms to? How do we hold people accountable? How do we make sure that if somebody is speaking on abuse, they actually know what they're talking about? Um, Right. (laughs) You know, how do we err on the side of belief when somebody comes forward to us, even if it's 10, 20 years later? Because, you know, we see what happens when women come forward or when men come forward. Yeah. You know, they get raped over the coals. So how do we create safe spaces so people can tell their stories and they're not going to be re-traumatized by the aftermath of that telling? And because our understanding in our culture, at least in the United States, when it comes to justice, is a very punitive one of you did bad thing, you get punished for doing bad thing, Transformative justice can be really hard for people to wrap their heads around because the assumption is that we're giving the person who did harm a free pass. Mm-hmm. And that is actually really antithetical to what transformative justice is because, you know, one of those things that Brene Brown will say is that, you know, blame is not conducive to accountability because our job is not to tell Franklin, Franklin, you are bad and you should feel bad. Our goal is to prevent future harm. Right. You know, hopefully that will mean that Franklin does some internal work and changes behavior. But even if he never changes, we can still make changes within our communities to make our communities safer and healthier. And also to help other folks understand that if I'm the one who hurts somebody, I have a process. Mm-hmm. I have something that I can do so that I can stop being a problematic actor in my community. Yeah, yeah. So, well, I think that's amazing. Yes, I think it's amazing. I will yeah. definitely be donating to the cause. I, I wish you, you so nothing much. but great success in your future endeavors and your move and your yeah. and your doctorate. I think Thank you. I will say, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I will say it's part of the process. I am just one person doing that work. There are a number of other really amazing and brilliant people who are working their tails off, um, even when we're not active on social media. So, like, 
I, I am I, I am just one small cog in that <laughs> wheel. Well, yeah. wheels take a lot of cogs, and I appreciate that you're Thank one of you. them. <laughs> thank you so, so much. No, thank you so much. And, you know, maybe someday when you're settled in Toronto and you get a break, we can chat again about something. That would be awesome. I would love that. All right. Yeah. Thank you so much, Samantha. You're welcome. Have a good night. Bye-bye. All right. Thanks again to Samantha for joining me on that amazing talk that we had. If you like what you heard from Samantha... Uh, please do contribute to her work and all the work of the people that she is helping out. If you are not sure about where to find that, you can always just Google Polyamory Me Too, M-E-T-O-O, and you will find the link right there. I will also have the link for the PayPal account to support the group on the Twitter page at SomedayDeadPC, and I'll also put it up with the episode posts. If you have any comments or questions about this episode or you are an audio expert and you want to help a sister out, feel free to go ahead and email me at SomedayDeadPC at gmail.com. So go ahead and watch those guilty pleasures and live your life. Live your life the way you want to in a healthy and safe manner. Because someday we'll all be dead. <laughs>